You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham. Hi, gang. Donna here. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is Helen Zuman, and she wrote a book called Mating in Captivity. You might be wondering what captivity is. Well, captivity for her was joining a cult. She had just graduated from Harvard and she was looking for something different. While most people were looking for a normal everyday job, she was looking for something to be a journey, something that was going to be creative. The thing is, it didn't look like a cult from the outside looking in. In fact, it took a while. When she first got there, she said she had a reaction. She felt something in her gut. And well, you know what they always say, trust your gut. Well, she didn't. And she spent quite a few years there. And while it seems like it might've been a dark place, she says she has no regrets about it. But there is a journey there. There's a journey to be told of what she went through and how her life changed and how it shaped who she is. So without further ado, check it out. Hi, Helen. How are you doing today? Hey, Donna. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So you have an interesting story. And I, I read one of your blog posts. I'm going to just jump right in. I read one of your blog posts about sex cults. Mm-hmm. So I guess let's go into a little bit of your history, because this is definitely something we're going to be dealing with, is it not? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. What happened, you know, how did you end up in a cult? I guess that's the first question to start with. Were, were you young, impressionable, and not so great home life? What what led you to this? Yeah, I would say the, the basic thing that led me into this cult was being in a space between stories. I graduated from Harvard in 1999 with a degree in visual art and a grant to explore intentional communities where people grew their own food and and built their own buildings and stuff like that. And I was interested in this partly because of an experience I'd had my last year in college of living in an off-campus co-op with kind of a hippie vibe. It was where the misfits gathered. And that was the first place I had felt like I belonged. So I was kind of looking for a semi-permanent version of that. But also, I just, when I looked around at my classmates who were off to become, you know, bankers and consultants and lawyers and such, I just didn't see myself. None of it made sense to me. In in my perception, all of those jobs, really having a career at all was just a way to keep the world devouring machine going as it always had. And I wanted to get out of that machine and do something else. And so I set out on this quest and I visited a number of communities out West and one in New York City where I grew up. And so I was was searching, searching, searching and not really finding any place that I was especially drawn to. And then about four and a half months after I graduated, this was in October of 1999, I found in this book called The Communities Directory, a listing for Zendik Farm, also known as the Zendik Farm Arts Foundation. And in the listing, it said it was mostly young people there. You know, that was cool. I was fresh out of college. It said they did all kinds of art and also farming. So I could learn practical skills, but continue my, my artistic journey. And they had apprenticeships, you know, so they knew what to do with people. Whereas other places I had gone didn't necessarily know what to do with me or just really weren't that interested in expansion. So all those things were, you know, pretty attractive to me. And I, I called up, I had a conversation with someone who lived there. I asked some questions, you know, I thought I was being smart. I got some pretty vague answers to my questions, but they didn't set off alarm bells because I didn't know what to look for. And then I bought a Greyhound bus ticket from New York City down to Hendersonville, North Carolina, and got a ride 
out to Zendik Farm out there in the backwoods. So, and of course, at the time that I made these arrangements and went on this trip, I had no idea it was a cult. You know, I thought it was a bunch of revolutionaries who, you know, lived on a farm and grew their own food. So that's that's what I thought I was signing up for. There's there's a lot of things out there like that. I mean, for the people that say, oh, look, you will you can travel if you sell magazine subscriptions and they put mm-hmm. they 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 do this to younger people because the younger person is looking for a, a different situation that they're in. So what did your family think about it? Were you, cause you were already in college, you graduated from college. Did they really have any say? No, they didn't really have any say. And at, certainly at first they were fine with it. I mean, no one was really concerned. Like this was sort of how I was. And as far as they knew, and as far as I knew, there was not a problem. It was just later on when I got, you know, super involved in this group and super devoted to it and started really, I would say energetically and emotionally cutting myself off from them and kind of becoming a different person and adopting a different language and all that. Then of course they got concerned. Yeah. I remember being, uh, I had just moved to Texas with one of my friends and she saw an ad and it ended up boiling it down. It was Scientology. Mm. We had gone to this person's house and they, they did the big sales pitch and they're like, oh, well, your life could be so much better. And, you know, both of us kind of just, no, here's how serious they are about people. Um, I moved from Dallas. I moved to Indiana. I moved to New Orleans. I moved back to Chicago. It took, now this was 1990 or 1989 when I approached them. I finally had to send them a letter again saying cease and desist back in 2005. Wow. Because they were still sending me mailings. It's like, dude, uh-uh. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there's cults and then there's, and some people won't say that's a cult and I'm not going to go there. But when you're that hot for somebody, then you have to be kind of, you know, special. Yeah. So what made you... So you're, you're there now, you've moved, you've, you've gone there. How long did it take you to realize that maybe this isn't right? Or was it the outside sources that kind of said, hey, this isn't right? Well, when I first arrived, I, I had moments of extreme distress very early on. I remember in particular one moment I was out on a work crew, basically, you know, as soon as I got there, I was put to work and I just, you know, worked kind of all day, every day, except when there were meetings or, or things like that. But I, I remember being out in the work crew and maybe someone had talked to me in a contemptuous way, or maybe I just didn't understand like what the hell I was doing or why this mattered. But I remember going back to my space and being furious and crying and writing in capital letters in my notebook, I'm not made for slaughter. And I think what I meant by that was, I just, I just feel like a, a, an animal in a, in a CAFO, you know, like I particularly don't matter. I'm a lump of labor, you know? So I remember that moment very clearly. And certainly when I first arrived, I had I had other doubts. They said they were starting a revolution, but they listened to Metallica. And I was like, well, that's pretty sold out. I don't really believe you. But none of those, none of those moments, none of those doubts added up to anything serious enough to get me to really question what I was doing. And I was surrounded by people who were true believers in this philosophy and this story. So it was, it was much easier to allow my doubts to be dissolved than to hang on to them. Also, a couple of weeks after I arrived, I gave the Zendix all my money. So, and once I did that, then I was really invested in making this decision right. So I actually didn't serious, I didn't seriously have doubts about Zendik, as in like, this is fucked up and I'm getting out until more than a year after I physically departed. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. At the, t- at the time that I departed, I was still a true believer. I got kicked out. And when I got kicked out, there was this tiny part of me that was excited and relieved because no one would be watching me, you know, for, mm-hmm. for the first time in, in five years. But my dominant feeling was just despair and doom and failure. That's where I was at when I physically left. And then I went on a whole bunch of adventures thinking per Zendic philosophy that I needed to go out into the death culture, which is what we call the outside world and mow down my fantasies about about how life could be good somewhere other than Zendik so that I would get desperate enough to go back and fully come in. So that's kind of what I set out to do. At the same time, I did acknowledge to myself that if I went out into the world with the desire to get back to Zendik, knowing, you know, thinking that I had to do that, it was gonna suck. So I did in a sense also set myself free. I was like, I'm going out into the world. I, I can't guarantee that I'll ever make it back here. Maybe this is all there is for me. And I might have to accept that. So I had that idea going and I had the mowing down fantasies idea going. But the fact was I was I was out in the world. I was relying on other people. And if I wanted friendship or if I wanted emotional sustenance, I was having to get that from other people. And so I think that kind of helped to erode my absolute dependence on Zendik and also just gave me a taste of non-abusive relationships, you know? Not that I hadn't had those before Zendik yeah. and not that everything about Zendik was abusive, but I just, you know, I, I once again had the experience of being with people whose default was to be kind and respectful. And so that sort of, I sort of worked worked that into my body, I think. And so, so there, there were a lot of things that kind of um, were gradually working on me in that first year that I was gone. And then it was about, I think it was 14 months after I, after I left, when I was, I, I was kind of prepared for a new thought beyond the binary of either I go back or I'm miserable for the rest of my life. I, I encountered a friend who had left Zendik about six months after I had, and she had gotten the cult memo and we had a watershed conversation in which we basically retold the story of Zendik, you know, whereas my old story had been, well, you know, I didn't make it there because like, I'm a loser. The new story was, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't make it there because it was a fucked up place, you know? So that was my, my big revelatory moment after which I felt absolutely elated and just thrilled to be free and back in the world again and able to love the people I loved. Did you have to go through any deprogramming per se? No, I mean, I would say I really just did that myself. And I, I really think about being in a cult as being trapped in a story, you know, and it, it's a story that I, I didn't come up with the story. It was, it, it was there before I arrived, but I learned it and I co-created it and I built it and I kept it going. And I certainly made it a part of myself. However, I was also aware, especially once I left, of like the weight of this story and the suffering that I was enduring while carrying it around. And so when someone came along and offered me a more compelling story, you know, a story that that set me free and just like eliminated this binary, I was like, hell yeah, you know? And then after that, there was still there was still work to do. And especially in the, in the next couple months, I had moments of just feeling like I was back in my old Zendik self and panicking about what the people who still lived there were thinking about me, kind of flashbacks like those happened. But 
over time, they grew less and less frequent and less and less powerful. And I think also I, I very much composted this experience through talking with other former Zendix, hours and hours of conversation, and also writing about the experience. And over a long period of time and many drafts of my memoir about it, recasting it from something that happened to me at the hands of this evil bitch, Errol, who was the leader of the group, and into something that I participated in, not in the sense that I invited my own abuse, but just in the sense, I went on an adventure. I went looking for something. I went on a journey. And some of what I was looking for, I found, and some I didn't find, and I found a lot of stuff I didn't expect. And all of it, you know, I have the power to compost all that stinky duck into a source of fertility and decide what I want to learn from it and, you know, what I want to take with me. Do you think, in general, that cults? prey on the people that are looking for something different, that are looking for a sense of community? Yes, I think that's a, that is a common thing that would attract a person to a cult. I think also though, there's another, there's another couple things. One is that from what I have read and heard, and this also you know, bears out in my own experience and the experience of people I know uh, from Zendik, that the most common predictor of whether you will enter a cult or not, is being in what I call the space between stories, being in an in-between time where you're not super committed to one thing or another. Maybe, maybe you just got divorced or graduated from college or lost your job or something. You're untethered and you're, 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 you're open to something new. And another thing is that cults, sure, sometimes they attract or you know are willing to take in like you know, wandering lost souls, but they also want people who are high functioning and skilled and capable of commitment and devotion so that those people can kick butt, you know, for the goals of the organization. Okay. So was there any, I'm trying to put this slightly, was there any sexual abuse in this place? Well, yeah, yeah, there was. And it was embedded in this whole sexual schema, this whole philosophy about sex and relationships. So Wolf and Errol were the two people who started the farm. They were a couple, they started it in 1969. And they believed that to be honest with each other, two people in a couple needed to be part of a culture where everyone else was being honest as well. And that's what they thought they were creating. So according to the Zendik story, Errol and Wolf were the only two people in the history of the planet who'd, have, who'd ever had an honest relationship with each other. Like in the outside world, everyone was lying all the time. They didn't have support. And in the outside world, if you're like, for example, a husband and wife, like you're just, so worried about losing each other's support in the fight for survival that you're just bullshitting all the time. So, so according to Zendik, the only way then for me to have an honest relationship, to learn how to do that was to, you know, stay at the farm and apprentice to Errol. Wolf had died by the time I arrived. So that was, that was kind of the basic underpinning. And then the, the, the idea that like nobody knew how to have a relationship we're all we all have to learn so out of that came these you know different uh, the various rituals um, associated with sexuality at the time I arrived there was a, a third party system for arranging sexual assignations meaning if I was interested in a guy I would, quote, hit him up for a, through a third party, through, through, there were two dating administrators. I could ask either one of them. I would, I would hit this person up either for a walk, which meant, you know, hanging out, making out, talking, kissing, whatever, or a date, which meant going to a secluded spot and having sex, you know, oral yeah. or vaginal yeah. or whatever. Um, 
so, so, so that was one aspect of it that there were, there were, there were, there were rituals for setting up assignations. There also the responsibility for birth control was entirely on the women. Um, my theory about that is that Wolf, the founder, you know, wanted to have sex with any, any, any woman at any time and he didn't like condoms. So, so as a result of that, um, every time before every date, I would have to go and be checked with a speculum to see if I was, you know, fertile. If I, if I was fertile, I couldn't have, have sex. And if I wasn't, I, I could. So, so there was, you know, that, that element of control. And then we would have sex meetings where we talked about our sexuality and sexual experiences. And there was a, there was a pressure. Sometimes the pressure was subtle and sometimes it was overt, but there was a pressure to report, you know, on what happened and, and allow what had happened in, you know, in, on your dates to, to, to be dissected, um, often in terms of what was wrong with you and what was wrong with your philosophy. So, so there was all that. And, and then in that context, you know, well, it, it wasn't very friendly to like enthusiastic consent, shall mm -hmm. we say, you know? So, I, I mean, I would say that there were instances of like, of, serious, there were instances of, of serious sexual abuse, um, but what was more common was just this sense that, you know, my sexuality was not my own, that it belonged first to the group and secondarily to me. And at the same time, actually the third party system was one of the things that, that attracted me to the farm initially, because when I arrived there, I, was I, I had I had actually never had sex before. I was quite inexperienced, not good at flirting, not good at the mating dance. And so I just thought, well, great, you know, I I, I have a wingman now. It was awesome, you know. So I I didn't I you know I didn't really understand the implications till later. But 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 I think there there were ways in which this system and just being at Zendik did allow me to explore my sexuality in ways that wouldn't have happened in another place. And there were positive aspects to that. And there was, there was absolutely a dark side. But as long as you can see the positive, that's a, that's a blessing. Even if it may have been dark, you, you do see some positive that came out of it. Yes. And even, even the dark side, I don't see as negative. Okay. I just see it as, you know, uh, another part of the story. So I mean, in a way, because it's funny, I had a podcast earlier today, I was talking about a lady who, with a lady who basically her and her husband rejected the white picket fence lifestyle and now travel the country in an RV. They work, they quit their normal jobs and they have jobs now, but they still, they're traveling life. They rejected the norm. And in a way, what you're saying is when you, when you decided to do this, you were, you were kind of rejecting the norm. You didn't want to, even though you were a Harvard graduate, you were educated you weren't looking for this cookie cutter life. Mm -hmm. You wanted something different. So you've left the cult, you've written a book. What else have you, what, what else have you managed to do with your life that, you know, and I, and I know that sounds really weird to be put that way, but what have you done afterwards? What has this experience taught you besides the book? I mean, are you married? Are you living a fulfilled life? Do you still miss the cult? I mean, what, what is, what is life like now? Yeah, well, I, I am married. I think one of the things that kept me at Zendik for as long as I stayed was this promise that I could learn how to have a, a lasting relationship with a man, which was something that I had always wanted. You know, I never, I never thought about having kids, <laughs> but I did always think I, I want to find the love of my life. I want to find him. And, and I did not, did not find him as Zendik, but about uh, four years um, after I left Zendik, I was looking for a job and I found an ad on Craigslist in New York, looking for someone to do deliveries in Manhattan on a giant trike. And so I answered this ad and and I, I, was, I was very leery of actually showing up for my interview 
because I had, I didn't, I didn't drive. I had never ridden a bicycle, even a bicycle in Manhattan. And my family was freaking out about my safety. But at the last minute, I discovered that an old friend from Zendik was working for this company. And so I was like, I don't know about this job, but I want to see my friends. So I will go for this interview. And I did. And then I, I got there and I saw in the office, there was a, a Zendik sticker. It said, stop bitching, start a revolution. I was like, what is going on here? And I thought that my friend had put it there, but actually it was the company's owner, Greg, his business was called Revolution Rickshaws. And so he had gotten the sticker from Zendix in Manhattan because he had started the revolution. Anyway, so Greg was owner of the company. I met him on this interview. And before long, we started, I started working for him. Then we started dating. I moved in with him very soon after that. And we got married. Um, 10 years ago this Friday. So Happy I, thank you. And so, so I really, I really think that, you know, there was a time at Zendik when I gave up, you know, I thought, okay, forget it. I'm just not worthy of this lasting relationship thing. I'm not cut out for it. I'm just going to have to be happy with being, you know, being loyal to Zendik and that's going to have to be enough. But, and I think that, that, trying to give that up was one of the things that made me, I think, lose heart, like unconsciously lose heart, you know, for the cause. But, but that, that was something I think I couldn't really give up. And so I, you know, stayed true to that and eventually made that happen for myself. As far as like missing the calls, having a fulfilled life, I mean, there, there was a certain camaraderie that I experienced there that was that was wonderful at times. And I miss that. And I miss a lot of the people. I mean, I'm still friends. I'm really good friends with a lot of the people I knew from there. And I do get to visit with them sometimes. But it's it's a very, it's a very minor, it's a very minor missing, I would say. And I mean, in, in terms of fulfillment, I I mean, looking back now, I moved to Zendik when I was 22, and now I'm 44, it's half a lifetime ago. Really the theme that I see that runs through that experience and through, you know, the years since I left is just this, it's just a desire for, for transformation, for new, for new understandings. Um, recently, I, I, got involved. Um, I found this podcast called Unfuck Your Brain. And it's connected to uh, a life coaching program, which I joined. And I started to notice like, like, actually, this is really helpful. I had been involved with I had signed up with life coaches before, but hadn't really felt anything major shift. It was just like, oh, well, they helped me, they believed in me. And, and then the three months ended, and it was, I was, it was back to normal. But this 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 other form of coaching really really emphasizes self-coaching getting to know your own brain learning how to like trust yourself which was the number one thing that I think Zendig militated against was self-trust and so I really threw myself into this work and found it super helpful and decided okay um I'm gonna become a life coach so I just I'm I will start my certification in November. I decided like, you know, all right, 22 years ago, I made this, this big leap in my life. I didn't really know that I was making. And, you know, this time I'm gonna do it consciously. I'm gonna do it on purpose. I'm gonna start a new career. That's all about, you know, deeply searching and reflecting and gaining new understandings. And another another thing that's kind of related to the, the, the Zendik experience, but, a different, very different uh, version of it is in the past five years or so, I've developed a relationship with an eco village in North Carolina. It's only about an hour away from Zendik used to be. It's called Earth Haven. And I found it through someone I, I knew from Zendik. And it's, it, I kind of think of it as a place that has all the good stuff that Zendik had without the craft. It's a, it's a truly healthy community. And it's also a village. So there's tons of, tons of interaction. And in a way, people there 
function like an extended family in terms of providing mutual aid to each other. So, you know, I, I, I go there, I go there, you know, when I can and, and it, it's off the grid and, and, you know, there's alternative toilet situations and food growing and, and the seasonal rituals and, you know, opportunities for hyper-local entertainment and just, you know, people bring their own talents. So that's kind of a, a continuation of the quest, I guess. Do you still do art? Yes, but in, in a different way. When I was in college, I majored in visual art, I think partly because I was terrified of writing. Writing had always been the most important thing to me in terms of artistic expression, but I didn't understand it as a process and I would get blocked and just torture myself. But I had been making, you know, making things since I was a kid. I never got stuck there. So, so I could do that. And then at Zendik, I did some writing, but always, it always had to be approved by, like Errol was when we decided if it was good or not. So, you know, I didn't make much progress there. But then after I left and I realized that I had been in a cult, I just, I thought that was miraculous. I thought it was miraculous that I had engaged in this fantastical delusion and it had seemed so real to me and also miraculous that I had gotten out. And, and I, imme I immediately thought, you know, because I was a writer, I thought I'm gonna write a book. And because this story was so important to me and so compelling to me, I was motivated to learn how to write as a process. So it took me 12 years to write the book and in those 12 years and all those many drafts and all the obstacles and so on, I did learn writing as a process and I got to the point where I never get stuck as a writer. I just, that's not a thing. So I guess nowadays my, my artistry is much more directed toward writing. And sometimes, sometimes I make things and my husband and I renovated our house and, you know, there's all, all kinds of making things that, that needs to happen in a, in a, in a house like ours. But, but yeah, I would say writing has become really my, my main artistic outlet. So your book, Meeting in Captivity, mm -hmm. it's all about your experience in the cult, huh? Yes. And you call it a neo-hippie cult? Yeah. Well, I call it that because it was started in the late 60s. It was part of the hippie era and the counterculture, the back to the land movement. It, you know, it started Wolf and Errol moved to some farmland and started gathering people around them. But unlike most of those communal type situations that started in the late 60s and early 70s, Zendik survived. It lasted for 44 years. And so, you know, there, there were all these vestiges of hippie culture, like, you know, tie-dye and camouflage, tie-dye shirts and camouflage pants and, and like men with earrings and, you know, stuff like that. So, and also our lingo, a lot of our jargon was like straight out of the sixties. So yeah, it was just, it was, it was a hippie cult that survived into the 21st century. What was its final death knell? Well, that was related to Errol's final death knell. Errol died in 2012 of cancer. She and Wolf had one daughter, Fawn, and Fawn was supposed to take over and lead the revolution into the, the, the next era. But Fawn, well, Fawn had grown up at Zendik. And so from the time she was a little kid, you know, everyone by default saw her as special. So she never really had to learn the skills that Errol had to learn in winning, winning people over to her cause or just, just, just dealing with people, just sort of bringing them along with her. So she wasn't very good at that. And it's also possible that she simply didn't want to lead, that yeah. she just wanted to sort of you know, be married and have her nuclear family. So, so in the early, uh, in like the, the 
the latter part of the first decade of the 21st century, Fawn got married, which was heretical to the Zendik that I knew. As far as I, you know, according to the Zendik I knew, marriage was utter bullshit. But Errol, Errol was having some, I think some, some, some kind of a breakdown. She was having some mental problems. Fawn was gaining more power than the group. She got married. Then other people got married. Um, there had been very few children. There were only two children born in the entire time that I was there. There were not, not many kids showing up at Zendik, but, but more people started having kids. The, 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 the mothers in particular became less enthusiastic about going out in the street and going selling. The financial situation, you know, wasn't great. Also, Errol, the farm moved from North Carolina to West Virginia in 2004, and Errol kind of bought at the height of the market. So that was a, a bad financial move. So, and, and the population dwindled significantly after the move happened, yeah. partly because the farm in North Carolina was near Asheville, was kind of on the hippie highway. The farm in West Virginia was just in the middle of nowhere. It was not a place anyone would come unless they were headed for that particular destination. So the numbers went down. And, and then, and then after, after Errol died, from, from what I heard, there was, there was a moment when, partly because of financial difficulties, there was a moment when all, all the people who were still there, who had been there for years and years by then, you know, had, had, been, had been like running the place and making the money and tending the animals and doing all the things forever. There, were, there was a moment when Fawn could have kept, could have kept the enterprise together by allowing all those other people a little more power, you know, over the land and the money and such. And she refused to do that. And at that point, everyone else left. Wow. And then she and her husband, as far as I know, they still own that property in West Virginia. They still own the main chunk of that property, but they moved away and leased it out. And so, so Fawn now, she has a husband and she has her children. And it's quite possible that that is simply the life that she preferred and maybe the life that she always preferred. It's interesting sometimes how, how families, you know, correct, you know, mm -hmm. generational things, how one part of the family is, you know, the quintessential little white picket fence. Mm -hmm. And the other part of the family is, I'm going to be what I'm going to be. Yeah. Um, do you think, you know, there was a big scandal recently with Alice Mack. I don't remember the cult's name, but the whole sex scandal cult. Right. What, I mean, and even the, the Jeffrey Epstein thing, do you consider that kind of cultish? Because I mean, considering the people that were in the position connecting, going to these parties with him, isn't that kind of cultish as well? Okay, well, as far as Jeffrey Epstein, I, I don't know a lot about that situation, okay, but my, my guess is from the little I do know that the men who were involved in that kind of activity, to be able to do that, they would have needed to step inside a really, a really horrifying story about what was okay and it would have taken a lot of energy and a lot of reinforcement to feel okay about that, you know? And, and, and as far as the women who were involved, I mean, I know so little about it, but, but I'm, I would guess there was a fair amount of coercion mm -hmm. going on and extremely imbalanced. It kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, that sometimes people prey upon the weaker person. And mm -hmm. from what from what I have watched in documentary and studied about the Epstein case, basically, he was offering these girls money and, you know, stuff like that. And when mm -hmm. you come from and he was picking on people that didn't have things that yeah. were very poor. So here you are offering something monetarily and which also ties into another woman that I've talked to 
who she's originally from Zimbabwe. And she was talking about how there with the larger families, a, a father will sell his daughter off mm -hmm. for a monetary or a cow or whatever to help support the family and how she's trying to stop that. So it's it's interesting how once, you know, and this is how I'm tying this back to your story is the fact that you were talking about your your feminine, your femininity and your feminine power was kind of, I don't want to say trampled on, but you couldn't own it. You couldn't own your sexuality. You couldn't own, and, and there's different, you know, we always look at certain things as black and white, that there's no bigger picture, but here's your story where you're not going to be able to necessarily claim your feminine power, your mm -hmm. sexuality. And here are the same stories of people not being able to claim their power, but it's a totally different way. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an interesting thing that when it comes down to feminine power, it, being empowered is not necessarily always possible because there are other other factors in the world, in different situations, in different countries, even. Mm -hmm. So, do you now feel like you've gained your your power back, your femininity back, that you can own yourself? And I mean, when I say femininity, I'm not talking about short skirts and makeup and all that other stuff i'm talking about being a, a woman just being a woman that is capable and confident in her own skin yeah absolutely and and i do think that one of the one of the main quests of my life you know going all the way back to when i was in catholic school and like you know too afraid to ask to go to the bathroom you know has been has been learning to trust myself and to and to like take decision making power back and to be like no like i decide i give myself permission or withhold my permission i'm in charge here you know and that's something that i've really been coming to grips with in my current life coaching experience is just is just really getting much more acquainted with my thoughts and with the idea that I don't have to believe all of them, you know, and, and especially because so many of them, you know, showed up without permission. I didn't choose those things. I didn't choose to think that way. I didn't choose to like beat myself up for, you know, not being perfect. So now it's time to, to really acknowledge that I have, I have power over those thoughts and I can choose new ones. And I think that's, you know, that that's a topic right there that fits both men and women because learning to trust ourselves and turn off the internal tape recorder from whether it be teachers, parents, or children, you know, bully, bully children that may have said something that hurt you to your core. Turning that off is a very powerful tool and something that it's, it takes a long process because the one thing about it is it can always come back. Mm -hmm. And I don't think most people realize that. They think I've gotten through it, so it's done. It'll never affect me again. Mm -hmm. So what do you think has helped you learn to trust yourself more besides, I understand the life coaching, but I mean, is there something internally that, that finally has made you say, I got this. I understand where I am. I understand who I am. Hmm. Well, something that I took not from not from Zendik itself, but from my my reflection on the experience was to trust the wisdom of the body. When I when I when I got there, I had various visceral reactions that I ignored. And what I understood in retrospect was that I am a storyteller. And my mind can always come up with stories that will make things make sense. I can always justify, you know, I can always find connective tissue, but my body will tell me what is really going on. And I think that although that's absolutely a work in progress, just that very basic knowing has helped me a lot to center myself and ground myself. And some, a, cor a corollary to that, like just sort of a, a homing mechanism 
that I've been using for the past past 17 years is is crying. So when I was a kid, I used to cry uncontrollably when something didn't like I didn't get a hundred on the test and I thought I was unfair and I would just cry and I just I couldn't stop. And I was very embarrassed about it. I didn't want to be doing it, but I couldn't stop. And at Zendik, I cried copious tears, you know, dramatic crying fits very often as well. And and after I left, I realized that, especially at Zendik when I was crying, but also I think when I was a kid, crying in that uncontrollable way, I wasn't crying because I was sad or disappointed. I was crying because I was furious. And I was furious because I didn't have control. I didn't have my sovereignty. And, and after I left Zendik, I largely stopped doing that kind of crying. But over the years, I would notice that kind of crying show up every now and then. And then I would know, okay, Helen, there's some way that you're giving your power away and you better pay attention to that. And you'll know that you have gotten to the heart of that matter when you stop crying in that way. It makes sense. It, it's kind of like the I'm sorry. The I'm sorry I, I have in the past had a propensity when my when I have been worn down enough, I will start apologizing even though I have nothing to be sorry for. Mm -hmm. So just like your tears, it's the same thing. It's kind of one of those things where now as an adult, you look back and go, wait a second, what am, what am I sorry for? You know, mm -hmm. so how was your relationship with your parents when you came out of this cult? Yeah, so my, my father, I had never been super close to him. He had made an effort to keep in touch with me when I was at Zendik, but you know, I wasn't super close to him before or during or after. Eventually, you know, I got in touch with him and we we ended up getting along okay. But my mother really played a much bigger role in in the whole experience. She came to visit me a couple times when I was there. And throughout my time there, even though I was very emotionally shut off from her and would just bullshit her when she called me on the phone and not tell her anything real. She, she just kept reminding me that she was there. And there was one time about halfway through my time at Zendik, I left for a couple months and got into a, a bad situation of being sexually assaulted while hitchhiking. And I was you know, alone at night and needed someone to talk to. And I just knew like in this animal instinctual kind of way, like do not call Zendik Farm. They do not care about you. They will not empathize. But I could call my mother and I called her. And, and then after I, after I left, I, I hitchhiked away from the farm in West Virginia. I had $10 in my backpack. That was, you know, that's what I had. And I thought I would go to California because it was warmer out there. So I was hitchhiking and I got a ride with a truck driver and he at one point just handed me his cell phone and he said, call your mother. And yes. so I did. And, and, and I think that what, what my mother did absolutely right in terms of you know, a parent with a child in a cult or a similar situation is she just kept reminding me that she was there. And so I, I knew, I knew when I left, even though I didn't, I did not go back to Brooklyn. It took me a while to get back there. I didn't go back to her right away. I, I did know that she was there. I knew that I had help and someone I could rely on. And I also knew that her love for me was unconditional, whereas the Zendix love was not. And that's, that's a great thing to know though. I mean, having that support system, even though you didn't rush right back, having the knowledge that no, to know somebody is there is everything sometimes. That's all you need to keep you going. Mm -hmm. um, so is there another book you're working on? I mean, I know you're writing blog posts on your website. 
Uh, yeah, I am. I am working on a second book. This one is a novel. It was inspired by my seven-year career as a college application essay editor. So the, the book, it's set in 2024, and the protagonist is a college application essay editor who has the chance to swing the presidential election by revising, strategically revising, and then leaking the application essay of the Republican candidate's son. So, and there's a, there's a Scottish versus English subplot. I'm, I am both Scottish, I'm Scottish and English and Irish by heritage, but I'm so much more interested in being Scottish than being English. And recently I've gotten very, you know, very into all things Scottish and, I, and I'm fascinated by, you know, the age old animosity between the Scots and the English. So the Republican candidate, the antagonist, he's English and the protagonist is Scottish and you know, that's part of their, their beef with each other. And the, um, and the other party, the opposing party is called Dirt First. And it's about air, water, soil, and relationships. Okay. Sounds interesting. Um, so going back to your college, um, college essay reviewer, you had to run across some interesting essays. I'm sure a lot were boring and standard boilerplate, but I'm sure there were some that were just kind of crazy to read. Well, I wasn't reviewing them. I was editing them. Okay. I was rewriting them. And okay. I, I mean, it's, it's really, if I were to remember any essays in particular, it would be because, because they were bad, because they were spectacularly bad. Yeah, that's, that's that's the lot of the editor as opposed to the, the reviewer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I get you. I, I apologize for misconstruing. <laughs> so, um, do you live on like a lot of property now still, and do you do your own farming and own gardening and everything else? Well, I, I live in Beacon, New York, in the Hudson Valley, which is just north of New York City, on 0.23 acres uh, with my husband. So, uh, we we I mean we have we have an orchard and we grow some food we we haven't been here for that long we've been here for a few years I'm still in the process of getting to know the land and you know what things want to grow where so I would say we kind of have a homestead we have a we have a wood stove and you know cook cook cook, cook with wood and um and compost and we actually we actually have a have a human manure set up so we're able to safely turn our own poop and pee into fertilizer, which is a wonderful way to, to close the loop. So yeah, it's very much it's very much a work in progress. Um, and, and we're in a city. We're in a we're in a very small city. So it's not like you know being in a rural area. But we certainly you know we're we're doing our best to turn our home into a locus of production as opposed to just consumption. I have never heard of composting that way. I mean, we have a compost bin at the house here, but I've never heard of composting your own waste. So that that's definitely something um, I've never been aware of. Yeah, it's awesome. And there's no, I mean, there, there's no health risk to that. I'm just, I'm trying to educate myself here. So. Oh, oh, absolutely. Totally understandable. Yeah, whether there's a health risk or not totally depends on how you handle the situation. I mean, and the, the, the commonly what people do when turning human poop into fertilizer is just like let it sit for a year or preferably two years. And if you do that, pretty much any critter that might have posed the problem is gonna die. Another thing you can do is you can hot compost. You can get your pile really hot, and and that will also kill any any problematic critters. But Base. I mean, I've I've had extensive experience with this at Earth Haven, you know, with a, a two-part system involving a, a bucket toilet and then outdoor corrals where where everything rots. And I mean, I've you know I've taken a, a handful of finished compost from one of these corrals and like stuck my nose in it, and it smells incredible. I mean, basically all you have to do. I mean. 
some precautions, but all you have to do is just let it sit long enough and it will become the most amazing soil. I mean, my husband, because he's, he used to garden, he would sit there and we would buy either mushroom compost or regular, you know, manure compost. And of course, manure compost comes with weeds. You know, you know, nobody mm -hmm. thinks about that. It's like, why are there weeds? Well, that's why, because cows eat grass and grass ends up, you know, in the digestive tract. So I guess in a way you wouldn't be having that problem. Well, that's true. It's very yeah. true. So are you a vegetarian as well or? No, I am not a vegetarian at all. I have been vegan and I have been vegetarian, but at the moment I am, I am very much a, an eater of animal foods and I am extremely particular about where they come from, how the animals were raised. I don't want to eat beef unless the animals ate only grass. You know, I, for, for me, I mean, not just with choices about animal food, but choices about any food and about clothing and about building materials. It's all about the ingredients, where they came from, the effect that they had on the web of life in their in the in the place that they came from and the effect that they'll have you know on me and in transit and so on well that's smart i mean today i got a recall notice on a cpap machine something that you <laughs> use to sleep with every night and apparently huh. this recall came out in june i got the notice today in october uh -huh. that you're supposed to immediately stop using it Mm-hmm. But it goes back to what you're saying. What was in the machine that has now caused this recall? Yeah. So, so I mean, there's by sticking with more natural things, we're we're lessening the fact that recall we're not gonna harm the world as much. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else you would like to add? Well, the theme of your podcast is the question of whether it was better to have done x or not done it so i mean i i said this to you when i first got in touch with you but just you know as far as as far as entering zendik and spending that time there i don't regret it at all it, you know it i still think it i think of it as this this sort of inflection point in my life the sort of the sort of before and after and and i think of it as this incredibly rich source of fertilizer and that's smart because that way it gets it keeps things going in a positive sense for you it, looking back with no regrets and I mean I didn't ask the better two question because I figured you have put a positive spin on it so it's a, it's a it's a good thing I will put your links and information in the uh, show notes and I thank you so much for your time and sharing your story Helen Thank you, Donna. I really appreciate it. Wow. Helen's story. What can I say? You know, being in a cult is not necessarily what one would suspect, but, you know, some of the things that we think we know about them seem to be true from what she said. Her story was quite an interesting story and one that I think people should be made aware of. We should pay attention to the fact that when something doesn't seem right in our gut, we need to really listen to it and trust it. Because as she said, when she got there, things just felt off, but she stayed and she wanted to believe in the message. Sometimes the need to believe in something when we have no tether, as she said, kind of makes us susceptible to predators. So stay safe. And, you know, if you want to check out her book, her book is called Mating in Captivity. And I will have links in the notes for you to check her website out as well as her book. And I have to say, thank you so much for listening. You know, the podcast, like I said before, many a times, it's something that I'm really passionate about it and I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful to have it in my life. If you like the podcast, remember to subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple. You can subscribe on any podcast service that you like to listen to. That way you're always up to date on the episodes. We're also on YouTube. And you can leave a thumbs up, subscribe, anything you care to do there, leave a comment. And definitely I will, I will reach out and answer those comments. If you want to send me an email, you can do so by sending an email to Donna at the better two podcast.com. That's D-A-U-N-A at the better two podcast.com. Anyway, I thank you as always for tuning in. 
and your support is greatly, greatly appreciated. So have a wonderful day. Take care and catch you next time. Bye. You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham. Thank you.